I think that's one of the, the beautiful opportunities that crying offers is it asks us to truly come back to our bodies, to have the bravery, to take the risk, to break from the structural violence and to be tender in a world that's not always easy to be tender in, to be vulnerable in a world where that is not always rewarded, to be emotionally honest, even when it is simpler to lie. It's a really sometimes overwhelming task to make oneself open to the full hurt and joy and tenderness of living, but oh, the reward that we get if we're willing to be brave. Hello, friends and damn givers. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and welcome back to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I say welcome back because we have been on a three-month break, and I have never taken a break this long in the six years this podcast has been around. I needed it so badly for a hundred different reasons, some of which we will get into in the next few weeks, but I have truly missed having these amazing conversations, and I've really missed sharing them with you. I'm glad we're back. I'm glad you're here. And I hope you're ready for a really, really, really great conversation today. Now, because of the lengthy break that we just took, I wanted to come back very intentionally. So I spent a bit of time, more than usual, arranging the schedule so that we could address some important matters right off the bat. Today, we're talking about crying and tears and grief, why our tears matter, how our tears can make us people of action, and so much more. Which leads me to my guest this week, Benjamin Perry. Benjamin is a minister at Middle Church right here in New York City and is an award-winning writer whose work has appeared in outlets like The Washington Post, Slate, Sojourners, and Bustle. Benjamin has a degree in psychology from SUNY Geneseo and an MDiv from Union Theological Seminary. They have worked as an organizer with the New York chapter of the Poor People's Campaign and as an editor at Time, Inc., and has appeared on MSNBC, Al Jazeera, New York One, and is the editor of the Queer Faith Photojournalism series. He and his spouse, Aaron, live in Maine with a few other people on what is becoming a really cool and beautiful communal compound of sorts. And Benjamin is releasing a brand new book today. It's called Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter, and it's so damn good. The subject matter is so needed right now, and Benjamin is a fantastic writer. You may not know anything about Benjamin right now, but I bet many of you are going to buy a copy of the book as soon as you're finished listening today. I hope that's what happens. And please, if you buy it, buy it from your local bookstore if you can, and ask your local library to carry a copy or two or three. And you can learn more about Benjamin and the book at benjaminperry.com. Now, before we get into this amazing conversation, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, tell me how much you love or hate me, anything goes, I just love hearing from you. And please make sure to come back next week, a certain incredible human who has become a friend and one of my favorite people on the planet, 
Rain Wilson, will be back on the show to talk about his new book, Soul Boom, and his new TV show, Geography of Bliss, and so much more. So don't miss out on what's to come. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the deeply wise, amazing Benjamin Perry. Let's go. Reverend Benjamin Perry, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks, Nick. I'm so thrilled about this. I don't even know if you know this. This is my first, this will be the first podcast back in three months. I, in six years, have not taken a break this long. It was much needed. I needed it for a thousand reasons. But I think it's incredibly appropriate that you're the first guest back given, well, you, you're great as well, but given the, the topic, the, the, the subject matter that we're going to be talking about crying and tears and grief. So, so you can drive your audience away for good. That's right. That's right. This will, <laughs> you've been gone, you got been gone for three months. Now come back and talk about crying, <laughs> come back and talk about weeping and bearing your souls before the, no, I mean, really though, like I've just been just in, 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 I don't prepare a lot for my podcast conversations. Some say that's a great idea. Some say that's a bad idea. But I, I usually, most of the preparing happens in my head. It's just like thinking about it and mulling over what we're going to be talking about. And obviously the last, <laughs> I feel like we've been living in a different world since 2015, that famous escalator scene. Um, but especially, I don't know, like the last few months, uh, maybe the Covenant school shooting, uh, that one hit close to home because I used to live in Nashville. I don't know. The last couple of months have felt so incredibly heavy. And so, yeah, this is there's no better way to come back on the scene with this podcast than to sort of open this new whatever's coming you know, ahead uh, with tears and crying. Well, yeah, and I think you're right in the sense that it's not that it's different than it has been for the last, I mean, not, not even, you know, before. Right, 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 for a long but there's, time. But there's, but there's a relentlessness to the violence of living in America that only gets more soul-crushing as you continue to live within it. And so it almost always, for me, feels like the last three months are the hardest months because they're the ones that I have already lived through all of the other months preceding them, and now I find myself here in these last three months where you live through the same cyclical violence again and again, where you see the same structures of degradation. And that's partly why uh, I've become somewhat of an evangelist for crying. One, because it just helps me move through my day and move through my life and stay whole. But also because if we don't do something with that overwhelming emotion produced by living within these cycles of violence they will actually break us. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's it's such that's such a great observation that like every 3 months or every 2 months or whatever cycle beginning and end we want to put on it, it always feels like it's worse than the last. And that's I I want to talk about this today because it, and we're going to I'm going to I'm going to pause and take a left turn here in a second because I want to get some intro stuff out of the way we kind of just like jumped in. But I do think that like it's 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 pretty horrific that every two month or three month period feels worse than the last, right? Like, isn't the whole fucking point yeah. that we get 
better, that we do better, that we be better. And here we are just like every, it's, it's like, how can it get worse than Trump? And then it has, how can it get worse than, you know, uh, white supremacists driving through, you know, black lives matter protests, but it has. And how do we have all of the, how do we have more? Like I literally wake up sometimes thinking, am I going to open Twitter? And there's going to be another mass shooting at another school and more kids, right? Like that's a horrific sort of way to live. And I think it's important to recognize a name that that's by design in the same way that there is a rapaciousness to capitalism where, you know, capitalism constantly demands more resources, more human bodies to consume, more uh, natural splendor to plunder. Fascism is also a escalating force. Given its own drive, it will continue to escalate and will continue to get worse until it is countered by power. There's no, that's why all this, you know, centrist (laughs) suggestions to make nice or compromise with fascism are completely wrongheaded because there is no compromise with something that only seeks total control, domination, and degradation. It will only get worse until we do something about it. It will only get worse until we do something about it. That is the banner of this conversation um, via, you know, by the use of tears and crying and, you know, <laughs> le- letting letting it all out there and not, not letting it get pent up inside of us. Okay, let's take a step back before, because yeah. this is just, this is not, this is a conversation not just about your book. This is a conversation about you as well. You wrote the book, all of the things that have shaped you, informed you in your life, uh, uh, contributed to you writing this book. And so let's go back as far as you would like to go back. I want to hear about the who, what, when, where, and why of your life. Um, I think I know a little bit, you know, over drinks a few months ago, like we, you know, talked a bit about it, but I want to go a little more in depth. Yeah. I, I want to know the things that have, yeah, have, that have shaped you into into the the person that that didn't cry for a long, 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 long time and now wrote yeah. a pretty meaningful book about it. Well, it's interesting that we started this conversation, you know, in the now, in the in the end, and then we're going back to the beginning. And if I can do the same thing with my book for a second, uh, in the last chapter of my book, because I, I do all of this work building up why I think crying is important, why I think it's meaningful, why I think it's essential for being human, for building connection. And then in the end, I confess, and it's not going to fix everything because that would be silly mm. <laughs> to suggest, you know, in the middle of all these gigantic problems we have that if, oh, we just cried more, it would all be solved. Like, of course not. But it, it can help. And that is a meaningful thing. And so if I rewind now and I go back to when I learned to cry again for the first time, what I see is a meaningful interjection of help at a moment I needed it desperately to help me reclaim some of who I was that I had lost in the previous decade. And so it didn't fix everything personally. I've done lots of therapy since then. I've continued to grow and change. And yet when I look back at that moment when I learned how to cry again, it is such a stark inflection point in my personal trajectory. So I'll I'll rewind a little bit further since you asked me. Mm. Um, Growing up, I was a pretty emotional kid when I was really young. Uh, 
I felt deeply like I think most children do. Yep, yep. I was quick to cry. I was also bookish and not tremendously socially gifted. Uh, and so unfortunately ended up on the the brunt side of bullying. And I remember being a little kid and watching kids around me be mocked for crying and being palpably aware of trying to do anything I could to you know, limit <laughs> any animosity that ended up aimed in my direction and just making a mental note that, oh, okay, well, you, you can't cry around other people because that's not safe. And so I started pushing crying into the quieter recesses of my life. I would feel something in the moment and I would squash it down and I would cry later. And the thing about doing that is that it becomes habitual and instinctive. And you start by, oh, I'm just going to you know, not feel this thing that I'm feeling fully right now. And before you notice, all of a sudden you're not feeling the thing deeply at all. And so that's what I see when I look back at sort of the course of my childhood as I see this kid who felt really, really deeply, who by the time I was in, you know, maybe sixth or seventh grade, I had pretty much completely stopped crying. And then I really did not cry at all, zero, all the way through the end of middle school, through high school, through college. And it wasn't until I began seminary and I had a professor who invited us to share memories of weeping that I listened to all of these classmates of mine sharing mm. these profound moments of crying and how it changed them. And I recognized how starkly that cast my own emotional poverty into relief. And I, I saw very clearly that there was something that had been broken inside of me. I wanted to fix it. Obviously, in those years that you didn't cry, there were opportunities yeah. to cry, right? Like you faced, <laughs> you know, whether it was uh, something yep. that happened in life or a film or a song or or you or you felt pain, whatever the case may be. Yeah. What did you replace crying with? That's a really great question. And it's a great question because when I was doing the interviews for the book, people replaced that crying with so many different things. In my chapter on masculinity and crying, I, I talked to a bunch of different men about you know how they how their crying was extinguished since for most of them it was, and what they replaced it with. And some of them reported uh, replacing it with anger that all of a sudden all the emotions were channeled into anger instead. Some of them reported uh, retreating sort of inward inside the self and hiding. Some people. Uh, one of the, the guys I interviewed talked about learning to be charming instead. Mm. That, that a, a performance became his replacement for any kind of vulnerability or tenderness. Uh, I think you know I heard that from other folks who I was interviewing for the book. People who became class clowns or who, who learned to sort of extrovert their emotions so they didn't have to deal with them. I mean, that's almost like a you know a <laughs> a, a punchline in stand-up comedy is the number of stand-up comics who had, you know, had all this deep, deep feeling and didn't know what to do with it. And so they you know, ended up uh, turning it into jokes, turning pain into comedy. Um, for me, I really just became numb. Mm. I was not, I certainly had some anger issues and stuff that I worked through, but I, I don't think it was as clean as, you know, I suppressed the feeling and I turned it into anger because a lot of that 
my anger issues were gone by the time I was in high school. But what wasn't gone was this this numbness. And so it wasn't that I, you know, didn't feel emotions. If you were like, Ben, how are you feeling? I could be like, I am happy. <laughs> I am sad. Right. I am anxious. But all of those emotions were so much closer to my baseline than they were to any kind of heightened sensation. You know, I I use uh, Plato's allegory of the cave uh, in my book, just in an offhand throwaway line, just talking about, you know, watching shadows dance on the walls of my heart and making them believe that they were real. That's That's what it felt like, is I could sort of see the contour of an emotion and be like, oh yeah, I'm I'm feeling happy, but I was never actually really really joyful. Or I could say, oh, I was I'm feeling sad, but I didn't really experience the depth of grief or sadness that I do now. Uh, and it really was learning to cry again was this resurrection experience where all of a sudden I felt alive in a way that I hadn't in a very very long time. And that's why I kept doing it. That's why I I started. You know, I went home that that first day and I was determined to cry and I made myself cry. But I didn't go into it saying, okay, I'm going to cry every day for six months, which is what ended up happening. I started this experiment where I intentionally cried every day. And I, you know, in retrospect, I can make it sound like, oh, yes, I, you know, set out on this experiment. What really happened was I cried that first time and I felt so amazing. I felt so alive in a way that I had it in years and years and years. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do that tomorrow too. And I kept doing it again and again and it just kept feeling good and, and it, you know, but truly embodying myself in a way that I hadn't. And the interesting thing was over the course of those months when I was doing this, you know, intentional spiritual experiment was I just rewired the way that my body experiences emotions. All of a sudden, I just became a person who cried easily to the point where most of the days as the months went on, I didn't have to go home and make myself cry at the end of the day because I had already cried. And now I'm just a person who cries a lot. I remember when I you know, told folks in the congregation that I was writing a book and they were like, oh, what's your book about? And I was like, crying. They were like, oh, that, that tracks. That tracks. <laughs> that, makes, that makes sense. You're always crying. Ha ha. <laughs> During those six months where you cried, you know, after you started crying, um, this is a super practical question. I'm not even sure how it's going to come yeah. out, but essentially like, how did you... Did you, was there a pattern for making yourself cry? Did it did it come like was it was it books? Was it songs? Was it quotes? Did you did you pull up a your favorite movie scene on YouTube? Right, like because because I I too I like to cry. I cry very often, yeah. probably daily. Not like a, I'm not talking like a. I mean, there are days when I have an all out sob, but even just getting tears out of yeah. out of those ducks and onto my cheeks does something yeah. for me. So I will there are songs I will go to that just make me feel so incredibly uh in the moment and with it and right there that like I, if I want to feel something I go listen to that song, I have a good cry and then I move on and I feel better. So what was your for lack of a better term formula for yeah. for crying every day for 6 months? Yeah, it's funny. I remember going to cry that first time and thinking it was going to be easy. So I was like, oh. I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't cried in like in, in a decade. I should probably change that. I should probably just go home. You've got buckets. Cry. You've got buckets ready to come out. Well, and and I remember thinking, oh, it's crying. Like, everybody cries. Come on. 
how, how hard can it be? And I went home and I, you know, sat down and I was like, all right, body, here we go. It's time to cry. And nothing happened. Um, and so then I, yeah, I went through songs and movies and, you know, little short films. I was literally Googling <laughs> the saddest thing, you know, a, a movie to make you cry, a short film to make you cry. Uh, and nothing was working. Wow. Um, and so I, I remember that first time, what finally did it, I'm very, very close with my parents. And I thought about them dying. And I thought about what would I say to them mm. in that moment. And also what would be left unsaid. At that point, I wasn't out to my parents. And I remember feeling really tender about that. About that there were parts of myself that I still hadn't disclosed to them. And in that moment of really, I, then I started to, you know, feel some of those physiological markers of crying. And I was like, oh, we're on, we're on the right path. Like, let's just keep abusing myself into into feeling something deeply. And so I, I just sort of kept sitting in that motion and just letting it, you know, play over and over and over again in my head, almost in a loop. And then finally, I it, something, you know, that dam burst. And I did, I just, I bawled that first time. Mm. I mean, it was in, in my memory, it feels like forever. It was probably, you know, 20 minutes or something. But I, it just was this complete breakdown because I had all of this pent up feeling. Um, and that's the interesting thing about crying that we see in the crying research, that we, you know, you hear from people, is that in that moment when you are crying, it's actually kind of a, especially if you're really sobbing, it's an intense and almost you know, physiologically stressful experience. Uh, it's interesting, some of the crying research looking into whether people feel better after crying, if you take that measurement too close to when people cry, people feel worse mm. because the actual act of crying in some way like returns you to that place of distress. You know, I, I think, you know, evolutionarily there's probably some advantage there in this, in the sense that it lets you, you know, physiologically relive some experience that, you know, hope, you know, <laughs> perhaps in antiquity would be, you know, running away from a tiger and you could like look back and be like, Oh, what happened to those in those like lead up moments right. that maybe I maybe I could avoid it for the future. Um, you know, unfortunately I, I don't do much tiger fleeing these days, but I, I think good. that a lot of times it, it returns us to, you know, that that intense feeling, whatever it was that uh that sparked our tears. And we in some visceral kind of way relive that or live that in the sense of, you know, imagining a, a dead parent or something. You know, that the, there is an actual physiological embodied way that it becomes real, even if it's something that's, you know, you're listening to a song or you're watching a movie, you are physically experiencing something that is, that is emotionally real every bit as much as something that is really happening. Um, there's fascinating research on art and why art makes people cry. I talked to this really amazing uh, researcher uh, in the chapter on physiology and crying but that was his whole question is he was at a Rothko exhibit. He actually was an art student first and he was at a Rothko exhibit and he saw all these people crying and he was like, why? <laughs> uh, if you don't know, Rothko paintings are just sort of big blocks of color. Yeah, yep. Um, and so clearly if someone is crying in front of this, it's not in the painting, it's something in them. Um, but Art, he says, invites you into this liminal space where you can let get down your guard in a way that you wouldn't if you were, you know, at the grocery store. 
and you enter it with the understanding and expectation that this is going to be safe, that this is a, a place that you can go into, that you can have this aesthetic encounter, and that you're going to leave the same way that you came in. But then what oftentimes happens is you you go on this journey by engaging this piece of art, by listening to that song that makes you feel deeply. And all of a sudden you are experiencing something in the real world, in your real body, that is not no longer now just a you know aesthetic abstraction. It's it's really physically real. And then we cry. And that those tears, I think, tell us something about ourselves, about why we're crying them. They tell us something about the world. They connect us to other people. It's this really miraculous thing that happens. I I couldn't agree more. I love the connection there between crying and art. And I mean, I, yeah, I'll on my side of things, most of the crying that I do revolves around. I mean, there there are moments and situations where it's just a thing that happened in life with my kid or with my partner or whatever. But most of the crying, most of the involuntary crying that happens, happens around art. It is such a special place. Um, you encounter things that you don't encounter, as you pointed out, at the grocery store or, you know, just driving around town or in our case, you know, in my case, walking around the city, you know, like th those are just super mundane moments that in, in art changes, art changes all of that. Um, was yours a household where even though you went for a long period of time not crying, was yours a household where that was, um, like, was any part of you not crying for such a long time for a decade plus, was that due to anything that was happening at home? Or or would that have been a very welcoming place to you crying every day? Yeah, no, my house was a, a place that really affirmed my own emotional life. I definitely didn't have parents who shamed me for crying. Uh, my parents never told me not to feel, not to feel deeply. My mom is probably more overly demonstrative than my dad, but I've definitely seen both of them cry. They don't hide it when they do, uh, which I think is in part a testament to you know, the fact that when you raise kids, you can only control the, the moments that you have them at home. Like every, every kid also grows up in a world and so even if you have the best of intentions, even if you create so true. A, contain, a container for your kids to grow up uh, in emotionally healthy ways, unless you are you know, living in a, in a field in the woods somewhere, uh, they're going to meet other people who are going to give them other kinds of messages and they're going to exist within a media, media ecosystem that treats crying in a very particular way. They're going to watch news reports that talk about crying in particular ways. I mean, I remember you know, being in high school and watching Hillary Clinton cry during the campaign trail and people just mercilessly making fun of her or you know Barack Obama crying after Newtown and, and people making fun of him for crying. I mean, just things like that that you know are really powerful moments when you're a kid or a young person and you see, oh, wow, you know, this kind of vulnerability, this kind of tenderness is not always greeted kindly by the world. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's safer not to do it. Um, and I would also say that you know, as much as I grew up in a home that didn't, uh, shame me for crying. I I also grew up in a you know a fairly like white Anglo-Saxon <laughs> Protestant home where you, you know uh, not crying was not seen as a a sign of you know distress or there was something was wrong. And not to say that you know if your kid's not crying, you should be like, hey, Bobby, why aren't you crying? Yeah, I'm gonna you cry today. I'm gonna make you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna yell at you till you cry. You know, I mean, obviously that. Uh, 
you know, not crying is not an indication that something is wrong. But I think that, you know, especially growing up in in cultures where crying is broadly stigmatized and in families where, you know, there isn't always super collective and effusive moments of like extreme emotionality. Uh, you know, I, I don't think my parents realized that there was something wrong, that I, that there was something that, you know, that, that I was going through in part because I didn't share that with them. Let me share for a second about my relationship with crying growing up. Um, I'd love because that. it's a, it's a bit, it's a bit different. I grew up, my dad is a Guatemalan immigrant, came to the U S yeah. when he was a kid and we moved back for uh, 10 years of my childhood. And my dad was very um, unhealthy, uh, emotionally, verbally, physically. And so what that meant was th there was a lot of physical abuse in our home growing up. Yeah. Up until I'm one of 12 kids. Um, and so the, 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 the last third of the, the children, the, the four youngest, they experienced a totally different because he, he has gotten so much better over time. Now he's this gentle giant and he's amazing. And I, you know, totally trust him around my kids and all of my, you know, little, uh, little nieces and nephews and whatnot. And so he's a totally different person now, but, you know, growing up, um, crying was, uh, exp explicitly and and unexplicitly forbidden. Like you don't, yeah. especially if you are getting the shit beat out of you because of something that you did, right? Something that you did that made me mad. Cr crying is unacceptable. Do not cry. You're getting what you asked for. You're getting what you deserve. So crying makes you a little wimp and someone that can't own up to their shit. That's what that's what the it, you know it, it meant. And if crying in the middle of feeling pretty excruciating pain, if yeah. crying did happen, um, you got more. Almost always there was, if, if, if a belt is being used or a paddle or hands or whatever, like mo whatever number I was going to hit you, that number is now greater because you cried, because you couldn't take it, right? And so um, I can't, I was trying to think in preparation for this conversation, I was trying to think because I do cry a lot now. I yeah. was trying to think, and I, I don't know, I don't know at what point during my traumatic upbringing, I'm sure it was after I left home, but I don't remember exactly when, um, when I started crying on a regular basis. But it definitely wasn't, I can't remember very many times. I didn't even, it wasn't like one of those things where I'd go into my room, you know, get the shit beat out of me, not cry, and then go into my room and cry. No, like I just didn't. Like, I, I, I don't know why that was that I didn't, I couldn't find one safe space in the whole home to cry, but I just didn't like, we're just not going to cry about this. We're going to, you know, it's likely that something like this will happen tomorrow or the next day. Uh, so I just need to figure out how to, deal with it. And crying isn't going to get me anywhere, obviously. You know, crying's not going to get me out of this hellhole. Um, and yeah, so that was sort of my upbringing. And I'm, I've been comparing it, again, in preparation for this, just thinking about like 
the environment that my kids are growing up in. We have th- yeah. we have three kids who cry very often about a lot of things. Cry out of anger, out of sadness, out of being hurt, um, and they don't get told to not cry. In fact, they're they're invited, and I'll I'll be one thousand percent transparent that if there's one parent that does this uh, less well, it's me, not my partner, Rebecca, who's almost flawless in her parenting. Um, But like we both try really hard to invite them to please, even even if we get frustrated by this showing of your emotions, do it, do it anyway. You're allowed yeah. to, you're invited to, this is your right to express exactly what you're feeling. Even if you're angry at me, I need to sit here and take that. You can be angry at me. I'm not a God, I'm your parent. I'm this person that's trying <laughs> to raise you, right? But like, yeah. and I'm, I'm here to love you and take care of you and provide for you. But like, I'm not untouchable. If I did something stupid, like get angry at me, you know? Yeah. So I'm just like thinking about, you know, you're talking a little bit about your childhood. Like, yeah, the, the the compare and contrast is kind of like fucking me up. Just thinking about like the difference between what they're experiencing versus what I and my yeah. 11 siblings experienced for so many years. I don't remember when it wasn't like that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry that you've uh, experienced that, Nick. Thank you. Um, it sucks. Before I say anything else, I want to, yeah, it does. I just want to say that. And I'm so glad that you are creating a different kind of emotional container for your kids. I think that that is one of the the bravest things that we can do because a lot of people, they do the opposite. That I think there's a you know an instinctive desire to want to think that we were raised well because it doesn't invite questions about you know parents who we may have relationships with, who we may love. It doesn't ask us to admit some of the pain that we still carry, some of the trauma that you know we have. It's simpler to be like, oh, I was raised good, you know, like, <laughs> like my, my daddy hit me and I, I hit my kids. Like, it's all, it's all good. Yeah, like, yep. it's all, it's all, it's all fine. I think that's like an easier way to go through things. So to actually make a break and to create a different kind of home for your child is a really, really brave act. So I just want to say, you know, thank you for doing that. Um, and it's interesting. I so one of the things I was really intentional about doing when writing the book is interviewing a ton of different people because I wanted the book to have all sorts of perspectives that I don't carry in my body that I don't carry in my personal history. Each of us only gets to live one life. And so I have, you know, things that I did write about from a personal perspective, but then I also really wanted to fill my book with other people talking about crying. And I talked to a few uh, first generation children of immigrants. Um, And something I heard from a couple folks who, uh, like you, lived in homes where the the parent actively discouraged crying. And one of the things that they, you know, from now an adult, uh, more detached vantage point we're reflecting on is, is how even though they would, they're trying now to actively, because one of the persons I'm thinking of right now is, is a parent and was reflecting on how she's trying to actively create a different kind of home for her children. Mm. She, and she was like, and at the same time, even though it was not, it's not how I want to raise my kids and I, it was not healthy and it was not helpful for me to be raised that way. I still see 
that as an expression of my parents' love because the world had not treated them kindly. The world had not treated them gently. And they were like, this kid needs to be tough. If they're not tough, they're not going to make it. 100%. And so even, even though you know, we can look back and say, oh, well, that wasn't, you know, a health, that wasn't the, the healthiest environment you know, for me to grow up in, I can still see how my parent was just trying to do the best with what they had. And living in a world that was not receptive to their tears, that did not create space for vulnerability, that actually actively punished them anytime that they were vulnerable. And so when you're trying to raise a kid and that's been your lived experience, what do you pass on? You pass on trying to be tough. You pass on how, how can you make it in a world that is not going to treat you kindly? And for those of us who are fortunate enough to transcend physical experiences where we can create and cultivate softness and gentleness, A, that is an incredible, remarkable, wondrous privilege. But I, I also think it's something that we need, we need to consciously and intentionally do because it is countercultural, because it does run against a world that does not instinctively and naturally foster softness. I could not agree with you more. That has been my experience as well. As I am now, you know, I've, I, I left home, you know, 20 years ago. I'm in my late 30s, right? And yeah. in, the tw in the 20 years, I've now lived away from home more than I lived at home, right, growing up. And as I've had decades now to, you know, consider my parents, who they are, where they've come from, who they've become now, that's exactly where I've landed. And I do, I do know that I need to do more therapy. I do know that I am in the beginning stages of writing a memoir that I don't think I'll be able to publish until they're gone because I want to be yeah. uh, on, honest. On, honest, honoring of where they ended up in their lives, which was a beautiful, beautiful place. But I just don't know if they would be, my dad in particular would be able to take the rawness and the honesty of such a memoir. But we'll see. Who knows? Maybe he'll maybe he'll he'll say, publish it now. This is the truth. This is and this is who I was and this is who I am. I don't know. But yes, a hundred percent. It's and why it's so miraculous. And I don't even credit my, I credit myself for some of it, but I credit the universe and God and, and other exterior things as to why, you know, 12 kids and none of us. Eight of us are married now. I think five of us have kids. Six of us have kids. None. I, I, there are a couple of my siblings that you know, uh, you know, use spanking to you know guide their kids. Whatever. And we're not we're not spankers. We we don't we don't hit our kids at all. Um, so there's a couple that are like, but nobody, not even a hundred, you know, one percent of what we grew up in, right? So yeah. it's pretty pretty miraculous that something happened in this generation. Because if you look at, my dad was just living out the trauma yeah. and the experiences that he grew up in. He grew up as he yeah. grew up in a, you know, with an abusive father in a very stressful environment. They lived in Guatemala at the very beginning of a civil war. So there was violence and just like, every time you did anything, you were thinking, "Am I? Is there going to be a fucking car bombing or a drive-by or whatever?" Yeah. Right. So you grow up just living in tension all the time, and 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 in my grandfather, my grandfather's parents, same thing. And so this goes back generations, 
This is all yeah. my dad knew was survival of the fittest. And unfortunately, g- going back to, you know, I, I want to I wanna circle back a bit to our religious adherence for a second, because I, you know, find my, I'm a universalist, but I'm a universalist that is going through life, you know, v- via the, the, the Christian faith, right? Um, yeah. And so, you know, my dad in his 20s, super unhealthy, you know, nobody was going after his, you know, his heart and his mind and his, nobody was trying to help him become a better man at the beginning of his marriage. And then he was proselytized by a fundamentalist Christian. And, you know, my dad became a Christian and was invited to go to this super backward, fucked up, you know, r- you know right-wing, law-abiding sort of church where, again, they weren't going after like, how are you? How can we help? Um, tell us your story. How, you know, uh, let's cry together. None of that. It was, you know, literally the first meeting that he went to at this church my dad had long hair, you know, it's the seventies. He had long hair, like down to his waist. And the first thing they told him was, man of God does not have long hair. If you want to fit in here, cut your hair. Um, Literally the first thing they said was change your outward appearance. So that's, those were the men that he grew up in his faith around, right? And so it just, there was never like, how's, how are things at home? How is the new marriage? Oh, you're thinking about having kids. Like what work have you done on yourself and on your marriage to like make sure you're prepared to raise another human? And in their case, yeah. 12. That's a lot of humans. To be contributing, beyond contributing, kind, loving, peace-filled, you know, anti-racist, anti-war, anti-all the things, humans. None of that. It wasn't even a thought in their minds or anyone around them. And so- it's so true that like, I, I do have so much compassion for, even though I've, I have many, you know, healed wounds, physical wounds as a result of, you know, living in a home with my dad for so many years. I have so much compassion. I literally look on him with compassion because I'm like, no, it wasn't right. Like own your shit. But also yeah. you were just a product of like, there were no people in your life growing up, nobody that we're going to guide you down a, a much better path. So it's like, what I can be mad at you, but like to what end? Because it was your fault and it wasn't. And this universe is a crazy place to, to live in because it's both and, right? It's not either or. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, you know, if we find ourselves in a place where, you know, the world hasn't treated us with the kind of gentleness and tenderness and kindness that we deserve, we then have a choice. Do we continue to replicate those same yeah. systems that harmed us, or do we do, do we make a break? Can we break that intergenerational violence? Can we break a cultural violence that expects us to? There's a line I love. Uh, this is particularly about men, but I think it's actually true for a lot of people. Where it's it's from Bell Hooks, "The Will to Change." Mm. She says the first act act of violence that patriarchy demands of men is not violence against women, but to kill off the emotional parts of the self. Wow. And so we have a choice. Uh, especially since a lot of us, you know, that happens before we are really choosing, we are being shaped. You know, I did not choose, I did not make an active choice. I mean, I, yeah, I, I probably can look back and like 
see times that I chose to, you know, go home and cry by myself instead of crying around on other people. But that's not really a choice when you're six years old, right? You know, that's that's you responding to a, to an environment in the way that children do. Um, but you know, when we become adults, we can make a choice whether we continue to live with those deadened parts of ourselves, or are we going to consciously seek resurrection, personal resurrection? I think that's one of the the beautiful opportunities that crying offers is it asks us to truly come back to our bodies, to have the bravery, to take the risk, to break from the structural violence and to be tender in a world that's not always easy to be tender in, to be vulnerable in a world where that is not always rewarded, to be emotionally honest even when it is simpler to lie. It's a really sometimes overwhelming task to make oneself open to the full hurt and joy and tenderness of living, but oh, the reward that we get if we're willing to be brave. We get to come alive again. Yeah, yeah. And boy, do we need to come alive again. Um, how do we, okay, let's get practical for a second based on what you just said. Um, there are, there are systems to abolish. There are structures to tear down. Every day feels like just an absolute barrage and shitstorm of bad news and, you know, the darkness is winning and how in the hell is Donald Trump running for president again? And Ron DeSantis, you know, praises the quote unquote good Samaritan who murdered Jordan Neely. And uh, the, the, the GoFundMe for Jordan Neely's family uh, up until yesterday had barely $100,000 in it. And in like four days, 30,000 people raised a million and a half, $2 million for Daniel Penny, um, yeah. this murderer, uh, uh, you know, it, it, a couple weeks ago, two 10-year-old kids were found in a Louisville, Kentucky McDonald's at two in the morning working the fryers and the grills. Um, you know, the you know, I think at the beginning we talked about the Covenant, you know, school shooting uh in in, in Nashville, something that hit home for me. Uh, a few days later, the 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 Range Rover that drove through a crowd of people in front of the Catholic Charities, you know, uh, building, killing seven people, injuring another seven or eight or 10 or whatever it was. Like, it's just constant. And so what I'm looking for is I, I'm, I'm in my platform, in my world, I'm totally fine. Like, I want to talk, I don't want to wallow in the shit, but I want to talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's yeah. name these things. Let's name these people. And... I don't want to stay there. I also don't, I don't also don't want to become part of the, you know, just rage, this circular, let's just keep talking about the rage. And there are some people that I think are great and well-intentioned out there in the Twitter sphere and in the Instagram sphere that are like, I think their intention is good, but it's like, can we move on from just like, all you're doing is you're doing what the right, that will be accused the right of doing all the time. It's just this, like this, circle jerk of just like bad news and just grossness. And so I'm always looking for 
Okay, how do we, good, let's talk about it. Let's name it. How do we move forward though? What do we do about it? And I think that this conversation on crying is critical. We have to fully feel what's going on. Once we name everything and talk about it, we've got to feel it. And And feeling comes via, you know, tears and cry. I mean, just sometimes just outright sobbing. Like we should sob at times about how insane it is to live in this world of ours. So how can we use tears to then pivot or take the next step rather toward action? I, I'm, I'm thinking like feel all the bad stuff, cry, use these emotions that you're feeling, get to the point where you can cry about the horrible things that are happening. And then we go into action, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that we live in all of these systems that need to be abolished, that need to be torn down and built afresh, not tinkered, not, you know, mending edges. Yes. But just whole, whole scale, fundamental reimagining and rebirth. And we can't wait for that to become whole people. Mm. We are waiting for all the systems of death to no longer be death dealing before we come alive into ourselves. Uh, you're going to be waiting a very, very long time. And I don't know that I will see that world. You know, I, I hope I do. I pray that I do. I pray that, you know, in 20, 30 years, we will live in a, in a fundamentally different place. And I'm going to do what I can to try to make sure that we get there. And also, I, I don't know that I will see that. And so, all of us need to make a choice about how are we going to reclaim wholeness in the middle of systems that break us. So that's the first thing that I'll say. And I I think you're right that crying plays a fundamental role in that, partly because of sort of some of the the personal healing and the personal um, compassion and tenderness that we've been talking about. But there's another part of crying that we haven't really mentioned yet which uh, my book actually really more so than the the personal healing and tenderness, although I, I do definitely talk about that. The piece of crying that I am most captivated by is the way that crying forges social connection, mm. because that's actually the piece that I think is is most essential for for bringing real change. Outrage is crucial. It's important. It's important to to feel and be aware of the things that make us angry. To be mad about things to be enraged by things that should provoke our rage. But if we stay in that rage place, we stay in that anger place, it's just going to A, eat away at ourselves, but B, it's actually not super great for movement building. It's great for organizing an immediate protest, a response to a a catastrophic event. But the actual movement building, that requires social connection and anger corrodes social connection all too often. And so one of the things that I think crying does, we know this you know, from the physiological research that when people cry, other people feel like they want to help them. And what's really interesting is in that act of helping someone, of sitting with somebody who is crying, one, oftentimes we're likely to cry ourselves. Empathic tears are very much a thing. You see someone who's crying and you take some of that pain yep. that they're experiencing into your own body you're now no longer just sort of cognitively saying, oh, I, you know, I feel your pain. You're actually physically feeling some, some part of the pain that they're experiencing. 
But also in that caring for somebody who is crying, you feel closer to that person afterwards. Crying is an incredible stimulator of pro-social relationships. That's one of the, you know, the folks who come from sort of the social evolutionary psychology of, of crying perspective suggest that that is why it evolved. It's not, there's some people who think that crying plays a, a physiological role in the body and there's not really enough evidence to show conclusively one way or another. But the, there's a whole camp of folks who don't think it plays any, you know, really essential physiological role, but they think that what crying does is it stimulates relationships and deep emotional connection between people who are not, you know, biologically invested in the, the continuation of someone's genes. Like that's what, what actually makes humans rather remarkable is the complexity of our, you know, outside of our family social relationships. That we can create incredibly deep and mutually beneficial relationships with strangers. And I think that is is something that crying invites us into, that if you're weeping with somebody, all of a sudden you feel differently afterwards. You have a different kind of relationship with that person. You're, to a greater degree, now invested in their flourishing. And that's the kind of communities we need to build where people have those strong relationships. I think that, that you know, there's lots of uh, really damning research that has shown the the decline in... American uh, like civic relationships. There's a great book by Robert Putnam, who's a Harvard sociologist mm -hmm. called Bowling Alone, um, where he tracks the decline of Amer American civic organizations. He uses the bowling league as sort of the, you know, to the titular uh, epitome, but he looks at, you know, organized religion and he looks at PTAs and he looks at neighborhood associations and informal card-playing clubs. And what he sees is across the board, all of these kinds of communal organizations have decreased in membership over the last 60 years or 70 years. It's not like we stopped going to church and so instead now we do this other thing that brings us into community or we stopped being in PTAs, but now you know, we... Do this, do this other kind of collective child raising. What happened was we all retreated into our own private spheres. That is the, the poisonous legacy of capitalism over the last 70 years is this commodification of the human being to the point where we all become individual consumers separated from our neighbors. And it's easier to control people who are separated from their neighbors and it directly inhibits social change. And so I think part of what we need to do is to fight against that wave Crying with people is one way that we can actually begin to reforge social connection. I'm so glad you went there. I was hoping you would, because I completely agree. And I and I and I think that what you just described has gotten exponentially worse. Something that might have taken 20 years happened in three because of this goddamn pandemic that we've been going through. Right, so yep. it, we were already going down, you know, this this path of, yeah, as you pointed out, like where are these, where are these clubs, where are these gatherings? So so many of them hap happened and happen now spontaneously. There's but there's no there's no uh, uh, 
yeah, we're not planning these things. We're not intentionally seeking to be part of these groups, whether it's, you know, cards or uh, drinking or bowling or golfing or whatever, whatever the thing is, we're not intentionally seeking them out like we see in, you know, decades and eras, you know, gone by. And yeah, the pandemic, I think exponentially skyrocketed even more this this, you know, it was so funny before we moved to the first year of the pandemic, we were still living in Nashville and I had probably no less than eight to 10 friends that lived here in New York, right? One of the most populous cities in the world, you know, eight and a half million people. You, I know it was during the pandemic, but you, you know, this is a place where you can't help but run into people no matter where you turn, right? There's people everywhere. There's a lot of people here. And yet there were f- friends of mine that lived here that were texting and calling me in Nashville saying, I am lonely. I'm going out of my mind. Oh. Do you know anyone here that wants to get together for, you know, uh, outdoor, safe, sit in the park? Just like, I just need someone to talk to. Yeah. And I, I thought that was so, I've never had a problem making, you know, friends and building community. I love people more than anything else. But it was, if I felt, it felt so weird that I was having people from, you know, a thousand plus miles away say, hey, can you help me meet my neighbor is essentially what they were saying. And I did, I connected them. I connected most of them with people that they, uh, you know, could become friends with, that they could cultivate, you know, friendships and relationships with. But you're so right that that is one of the more interesting parts of this book and this idea and tears and crying and the social connection part is that, you know, you, in fact, you, you know, cause you went there when I, when I was talking about sort of these, these big social, uh, you know, these horrific things that are happening in society, that's where you went. And I love that you went there and maybe it came from, you know, uh, last week you tweeted, we cannot uproot violence with more violence. We must instead deliberately cultivate a culture of care and tenderness, even when it feels like those forces are ill-matched against the aforementioned evils. Yeah. I think that's so, so, so incredibly important because the, the evil, the bad things that are happening in the world around us seem so uh, unfixable, insurmountable. We can't fix it. Let's just like give in to, let's just chill. Let's just watch more Netflix and just do fuck all because what can we do? What can we do? Look at these people in power, these systems in power. Like how can you and I, on a very practical, personal, local level, how can we make sure that Mayor Eric Adams does not get reelected <laughs> because he is yep. so very bad for this city in a million different ways, right? But that seems so big when he's got all the money and the police unions and the this and the that and the power on his side that changes, that dynamic changes. We've seen it in movements that have, we saw it very, in a huge way in 2020 with George Floyd. And and we've seen it in several huge movements around gun control and around this and around that ever since then. Um, And obviously it's it's not new, but those are just recent ones that happened during a pandemic when everybody should have been like apart. We saw these movements still forge. I think you're totally right that the social connections the social side of emotionally connecting with someone um, and building these friendships and these relationships and these communities is one of the most important ways that we can fight these uh, evils. I mean, hope is a muscle. And helplessness 
is intentionally cultivated by people who want us to feel like despair is the only choice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what's interesting as we think about crying is those same forces that try to separate us from our neighbors that want us to feel like there's nothing we can do also suppress crying. Mm. There's a very intentional, deliberate attempt. We see that you know, on a, in a very uh, exaggerated way when cities respond to Black Lives Matter protests with tanks and tear gas. That is a, a violent suppression of communal grief. But we see it in all sorts of quotidian ways, the way that crying is discouraged in the workplace and the way that uh, you know, conservative pundits mock open emotionality. There is either a conscious or subconscious recognition that when people are able to express how they're truly feeling, it creates bonds of solidarity. And so, you know, what, what can we do? We can fight those, those forces that are trying to suppress our humanity. Let's get, uh, we've got uh, 15 minutes or so left before I want to let you, let you go and get ready for your day, right? We, we caught each other here at the very <laughs> beginning of the day. And I, I will point out, we are, we are talking, we are recording this one day before the podcast releases and one day before your book comes out. This is not typical. I, no fault rests on you. I've had to reschedule like three <laughs> or four times. There, has been, there have been all sorts of known and unknown illnesses coming through our home and just weird situations. And so Ben has been very gracious to reschedule several times. But as we enter you know, your book release week. Um, yeah. And as you're, I guess I want to move our conversation, the last section of our conversation. We've talked about some pretty heavy stuff and we've only scratched the surface. I could talk, you know, we could do like a 12 hour marathon conversation about this and still not run out of things to talk about because it's so huge, so heavy, so monumental. Um, but let's get practical for a minute as we begin to wrap up. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to talk about, so I would imagine if if there are people that are listening, and there are, uh, the, the people that have made it this far in the conversation are interested in, you know, hopefully they're going to buy a copy of your book. Hopefully they're going to they're going to learn more about you and your work. But hopefully, I bet some people are, you know, gotten this far and they're like, okay, I haven't cried in a year or two or 10. Yeah. Um, obviously, whatever you're going to share is going to be subjective, but- Help us, how, how would you recommend someone get started, right? So someone is listening, they haven't cried, they want to cry, they don't know how to cry, but they, have, they are convinced at this point in our conversation, I, alone and in, in collective community, need to learn how to cry. That's how I begin to give a damn more. That's how I begin to take next steps toward action. Um. Talk for a minute or two just about how you would recommend someone like just, again, very practical. This is how, again, this might not work for you, listener, but maybe give this a shot. Maybe maybe start with these one or two or three things that might get you down the path of crying. Yeah. It's interesting when it's a, it's a different version of the question that I oftentimes get asked when 
people are talking to me about the book and they say, uh, well, you know, what, what do you want from the book? Do you want people to cry more? And sure. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds great. <laughs> um, but it's actually not what I, what I most hope that people get out of reading the book. What I really want people to do is to let go of some of the shame that we carry around crying. Amazing. Yeah. So many, so many of us have this shame that is instilled in us when you're kids. We learn that crying is something shameful. And then all of a sudden we become adults and now we have a different kind of shame. And we feel shame that we're not more emotionally available. We feel shame that we aren't able to cry, that we're not able to, to truly deeply feel. And all of that shame is not ours. It is the creation of systems that we did not make, mm. that we grew up within, that we lived within. And so what I really hope that people will do reading my book is be invited into curiosity about their relationship with tears. I go through a lot of the social forces that I think inhibit crying and why I think that is. I go through some of the physiology and psychology of crying so you can maybe give a better, get a better sense for you know, why we cry, what those tears can do for us and others. But I hope that by reading all of that, you can start to ask questions about how did I develop my own particular relationship with crying and start to dig into some of that emotional work because the reality is that the crying piece, that's the end. Sure. In the same way that, you know, yep. extinguishing crying, it's almost the opposite of the canary in the coal mine. It's like the last thing that goes. There's so much emotional deadening. There's so much emotional numbness that happens before we lose that inability to, that ability to cry. Um, and so before we get to a place where, I mean, yeah, you can, you can do what I do, what I did rather, <laughs> you know, go, go to your room and, and emotionally abuse yourself into crying and do it every day for six months. Um, I, I don't know actually that I would advise people to do that. Uh, it was a little bit of an extreme thing to do at all. Uh, it happened to, to pay good dividends mm. for me. Um, but I think that there are other ways <laughs> to, to do that work that, I mean, I was also a, a seminary student at the time. I had, I was in, I was 21 years old. I had lots of, I had lots of free time. I didn't have kids. I didn't have, you know, uh, I think there are different ways to do that work that is perhaps a little bit easier and gentler than, you know, shock and eyeing your emotional system. Um, and I think part of that is just, is really learning to be curious about your emotions and how you develop the relationship with your emotions that you have. And so, that's where I would start. If you if you haven't cried in a long time and you would like to cry again, let go of the crying piece. If you can develop a more complete and honest emotionality, that that's going to come. You're going to cry again, I promise. But to get to that place, there's all this other work. It's beautiful. Before... We finish. I want to public. I, I don't think I've asked you this privately. This is a question I ask many people that have, you know, every reason to leave their faith and their religious adherence, and yet they don't. You know, I, I, I don't know if I actually introduced you. No, I did. I opened up with Reverend Benjamin Perry. Um, you're a minister. <laughs> uh, that is your full time, you know, work. Uh, you preach and teach, and you put on a collar every weekend, and um, the, the, 
we didn't talk a lot about your religious upbringing. You you sort of alluded to some of it, but we didn't. So I don't know what particular flavor you were involved in growing up. But I guess my question is, um, you know, there are currently, I, I don't even want to think about the number, you know, millions and millions and millions of people across the world that have woken up to the fact that their religious upbringing, their particular flavor or the things that were done to them, it was wrong, it was toxic. And they're currently trying to figure out like, where where do I go? Do I leave? Do I leave altogether? Is there a God? Is there some force that is, you know, helping us through this journey called life? Um, do, do I still go to church? Do I still go to synagogue? Do I still go to mosque? Like they're, they're just trying to figure out the lay of the land and they're utterly confused because it's confusing. And yep. um, so your story, your journey, uh, no snark in these questions, but like, cause I'm right there with you. Like, why are you, why have you chosen being a minister as a career? Um, like something you do all the time uh, yeah. where you're around, you're, 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 you're by you're, you're being connected uh, to some pretty bad actors and bad figures. And like, you're just, you're, you're in this crazy fucked up family, right? Yeah. It's a bad club. It's a bad, it's a bad club. It's a weird club. Um, so why, why be a minister as a profession in this sort of day and age and what keeps you, what are the big things that sort of keep you from, you know, leaving your, your faith and all faith altogether, uh, religious adherence or going to another or yeah. So look, what's your, what's your sort of like three, four minute take on that humongous question that I just posed right at the end of our conversation? Yeah, I'm going to solve all the religious problems. Please right do. Now. Please do. I'm ready. Everybody get your um, get your pens and notebooks. Exactly. I'll give you the answers. Uh So I I could not be a minister if I did not get to be a minister at a place like Middle Church where I serve. I serve this incredible, wonderful, queer, anti-racist, gloriously artistic church in the East Village where I get to do the kind of ministry that when I was in seminary I only dreamed about doing. Mm that really lets me show up in the fullness of my queerness, that lets me be unsure of my gender, that lets me uh, ask questions more than offer people answers about the faith and how you should be living. Uh, I couldn't be that kind of minister. And I'm so glad that I'm, I'm not. As far as the faith piece of it goes and why I stay in my own faith, you know, I have answers like I want to reclaim Christianity from the folks who have hijacked it for hate. Yes, I do. Yes. And I I don't appreciate people taking something that means an awful lot to me and wielding it for bigotry and using it to oppress people like myself to, uh, you know, seed homophobia. I mean, that process of reclamation is a big part of why I do the kind of public theology work that I do. But it's actually not what keeps me in the faith. The reason I'm still a Christian is because on those nights that break me when I wake up and I'm crying and I don't know what to do. On a Saturday night when I have to preach on Sunday morning and I don't actually feel that hopeful that I need to give somebody else some hope. I pray and I ask God, 
I ask God to to give me some some semblance that things truly can be better, that resurrection is possible, that death will not have the final word. And it is in that process of praying, it is in that relationship with God that I am reminded of my belovedness. That I'm reminded how deeply God loves the people around me. And I'm reminded of that old story of a tombstone rolled away. Of people showing up to a place that they thought contained only death and finding life instead. That's the great thing about being a minister. It's the great thing about being a Christian. I don't have to rewrite the story. Mm. I'm not making up something new. I get to live that same story that people have been telling for 2,000 years through plagues, through wars, through genocide. But in the middle of all of that, we can still love each other well. We can still be vulnerable. We can still be tender. Like Jesus, we can show up to the grave of someone we love and we can weep. And there is something in that weeping that waters resurrection. That's why I'm a Christian. Thank you. Do you happen to have a copy of your book nearby? I do. I want, if you don't mind, uh, let's, I'm not trying to spoil any more of the book for people, but I hope this entices them to come. Can we, can we end by uh, you reading The Blessing for Crying that, that appears at the end of your book? And what I would like is for people to, I know this is, I'm not trying to be weird right now, but uh, from the time I stop talking to the time you start reading, do like a five second break. And if you're listening, if you're, this is something that everybody can do, regardless of how you're listening to this podcast, walking, running, uh, sitting down, uh, driving a car, just take a few deep breaths before you receive this blessing for crying that meant a lot to me the first time I read it, and I've read it several times since, and I believe it's a great way to conclude our time together. Because I'm a pastor, I'll leave you with a benediction. If you've lost your tears, may you find them again. Know that you are never beyond redemption and worthy of full emotional life. May crying nourish you, a balm for the wounds you still carry, and a salve on fresh hurt. As droplets fall, may they water new growth, and may our collective weeping shape a world better than the one we inherited. May we attune ourselves to grief and hold the places we are broken repairers of the breach. May cries long silenced be heard in full, yeast for our communal rising. Hold each other fiercely, not to build a future where every eye is dry, but one where we weep copiously from the joy and tenderness of living. Hmm.
and I love that in the in the in the camera view on your side, uh, everybody could see the quote on the front by our friend Simran Jeet Singh: "A gift to all who cry and all who long to." So this is a book for everyone. <laughs> if you're already a crier and you're in touch with that part of who you are, and if you long to do that, so the book is "Cry Baby: Why Our Tears Matter." A great book. It's a great cover too. I love I love the I love the design. I don't know how much input you, you had in it, um, but it's it's so great, but so poignant, obviously, with the the onion reference there. Uh, it's out today, Tuesday the sixteenth. Correct? That's tomorrow. My brain is that's scrambled. It. That's uh, it. Tuesday the sixteenth. So go get it. Um, I'll have all the links in the in the show notes and obviously all over social media. Please get this book, not just because it's fantastic, but because we must must, must, must support our author friends, uh, especially first-time authors that probably want to write more books, and you're a great writer, and so we need to, we need to have you writing more books. Um, Benjamin Perry, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. I hope we find uh, another opportunity to do this again about something else or more about crying. I mean, there's so much more to talk about. So thank you for joining us and for welcoming the listeners back after a three- month break. That's so lovely to be on the show. Thanks for having me on. Friends, thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with Benjamin and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. And to learn more about Benjamin and the book, visit benjaminperry.com. Please share this episode with a friend or two. Please, if you haven't already, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins-Harn, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. And you can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.